Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. All right, all right, stop the music. James Altucher, what the heck are you? You know, Robin, that's a great question. I don't know. I, do we have to have a label? Well, I mean, <laughs> what, are, what are you? I'm a, I, I'm a, I'm a young American. Uh, what do you want me to say? I'm a patriot. I'm a podcaster. I'm a Persian. Uh, yeah, I, I can't. Week uh, writer. Yeah, R and B, R and B heartthrob. You name it, right? So when I look at your bio, James, it says hedge fund manager, venture capitalist, best-selling author, former HBO documentary maker. You've written for the FT. You've gone broke several times. You've had at least one bender at the Chelsea Hotel, several nervous breakdowns. And your name comes up on a serious note when people Google, I want to die. Um, how do I sum it up? You have a podcast that's been listened to more than 10 million times. I don't know where to place you when I tell people I'm booking so-and-so this week. Uh, you don't. You kind of defy description in, in those Venn diagrams. You know, I, I, I'll tell you the thing I enjoy most, which is writing, uh, and I do that every day. I've also started a, a couple of companies, so I've been an entrepreneur, uh, and I advise and help a lot of other companies, and I do all sorts of things. I, I have I like to have fun and make money at the same time. Well, let's back this up a little bit. So, uh, you know, we want to introduce. There's, there's a whole new world of people outside of Wall Street, outside of finance, outside of the half of one percent that know you and love you, uh, know you as a character of empathy and candor. I first knew you. Let's you know today is the 15th anniversary of the very top of the tech and telecom bubble, and I remember reading you as uh, someone who <laughs> totally bought into that bubble uh, disastrously. You wrote for thestreet.com, and I remember they they positioned you as a telco expert, and you were great on all these C-Lex and B-Lex and D-Lex. What was the story behind that? Take us back to the year 2000 when things were super flush and thestreet.com. I remember we, we took them public at Goldman Sachs. The future was so bright, you had to wear shades. Well, you know, at 2000, I wasn't yet writing for thestreet.com. I was actually running a venture capital fund, and... Basically, March, you know, 16th or, or whatever day it is now, the day before the, the, the peak of the bubble was the day we opened up doors as a VC fund. And then the very next day, like, I don't know, the NASDAQ dropped 20%. And I remember meeting, you know, my fellow partners uh, for breakfast the next morning. And I was like, oh, this is just a blip. It's going to come back stronger than ever. Like, nobody had a clue. I mean, some people actually did have a clue, and some people were very smart. I should say I didn't have a clue. I was really stupid. Well, so, why were you why were you uh, uniquely qualified to raise VC money? I know there was a, a boatload of dumb money going around back then. I also remember you from that short-lived HBO documentary. What was it, 3 a.m., where you'd go up? I think you went up to transvestites um, in the meatpacking district. You talked to cabbies. You talked to people really on the corner of, of Port Authority and the Hudson River at 3 in the morning. Yeah, so in the, in the 90s, I worked for HBO, and I had a web show called 3 a.m., which we also shot as a pilot. Uh, uh, where I would interview, if you were out at three in the morning on a Wednesday night, you were up to no good. So I would basically interview, for three years I did this, I would interview anyone who was outside in New York City on a Wednesday. Saturday night was no big deal because everyone was out partying or right, whatever. Right. But, but if you were out at three in the morning, like, Why? So I would go up to basically everybody and interview them and put the results of the, the transcript and photos of the interview and sometimes video on the internet. It was really like a, the the first blog like in 1996. 
So uh, it was actually one of the jobs I've enjoyed the most. Well, t- tell me why you were why you were into that. Were you lonely? What was your situation? Where were you living? Obviously, you're you know you have quant abilities. You're a master chess player. Uh, if people read about you, lots of things were going on back then. One, I you know I don't even remember having a, a cable internet connection in 1996. It was still a 56k generation. So what business did you have putting a webisode up, right? And two, was there something cathartic? Uh, uh, you know, therapy like in you going out there and um, almost in a fight club sense, indulging in, in other people's, you know, it being having this empathy for other people's misery. Well, you know, f- fight club was, is a good way to put it. But basically, I had a kind of a computer science background, but I was thrown out of uh, school in computer science because I was I was really obsessed with writing fiction. So I kind of had was straddling, you know, between kind of technology and entertainment. And so I ended up at HBO and I ended up at making HBO's website is the first thing I did. And uh, I pitched to them, listen, you do original TV on HBO. Why don't you do original web shows? And so they said, okay, what? And I pitched this 3 a.m. idea and they let me do it. And it was such a great experience because I was a very shy person and I was not a late night person. So I I did the things that would most take me out of my comfort zone, which is, you know, going out at three in the morning and just randomly going up and talking to people and saying, hey, what are you doing? When most of them were up to some sort of like criminal or illicit behavior, uh, you know, it was scary and I was shy. So I had to very quickly learn to get people to open up to me. You only have like maybe 10 or 15 seconds for people to either punch you or open up to you in those situations. And I did get quite a few punches, but also quite a few people opened up to me. And of course, uh, you know, after they put their phone number down on the release form, I would also call some of them for dates the next day. And so it was a, it was a great time to be young. What was the lesson? uh, What was like the median weighted average lesson you learned from everybody there? We talk about uh, uh, you know, depressed people. We talk about prostitutes. We talk about pimps, drug dealers. Again, yeah, 3 a.m. in I the morning that, on Wednesday. I think the the main thing is that we all are are fooled into thinking nine to five is like the normal life, but the reality is there are many types of lives, and the reality is everybody is d- deserving of our empathy. And you know, many people who can't fit into the normal nine to five life find an alternative to it, and you learn to really respect the fact that you know life is a big is a big beautiful mess and you know we're all we all received an invitation we all equally received an invitation and um and and you know whether or not you make use of that invitation and enjoy the party is is totally up to you and we have no right to to judge anyone else who's at the party. So where were you in this journey on a, on a personal level? You grew up in a, a middle-class family, kind of stay in school, uh, do your homework. You went to Cornell. Um, you, you went to graduate school. You thought that there would be kind of a straight path, uh, like a lot of, uh, you know, uh, overachieving youth into keeping a, a college degree, overachieving, getting a great job. When was, like, the first really risky thing? When did you break bad? Well, I think I think this 3 a.m. project actually. Well, actually, earlier than that. I mean, I was kicked out of graduate school for writing fiction. I didn't show Ooh, up for class. Ooh, badass! You wrote fiction. <laughs> yeah, well, Look at you, you know, breaking I was, the law. I, I I was given a scholarship, so I had all this, you know, 
free time and money. And I, instead of using it to do what I was supposed to do, I, I basically did what I wanted to do and what I fell in love with doing. And then eventually I was kicked out and I, I had to kind of quote unquote, get a real job. And I, I went to HBO and I was a programmer at HBO. And despite having gone undergrad for computer science and grad school for computer science, I was such a bad programmer. I had to take remedial classes in programming to, to fit in. But then I started pitching, hey, start doing all these other ideas. And then an interesting thing happened. While I was doing this 3 a.m. website, other entertainment companies were coming up to me and saying, or were calling me and saying, hey, can you do a website for us? So I started a company on the side, and this is where you might say uh, is Breaking Bad. So while I was a full-time employee at HBO, I had a whole company on the side. You know, we had, by the time I finally left HBO, 18 months after I started my company on the side, I had close to 20 employees at that point. And I was the CEO, and we were doing websites for every record label, many movie studios, uh, many different divisions of Time Warner, and, of course, HBO. So, you know, that was that was a, a difficult but exciting period where the Internet was just starting to kind of people, – people weren't using it, but they were aware that it existed. And so my challenge was to convince companies they needed a website which oddly, you wouldn't think that would be a challenge at this point, but it was a challenge then. And there were very few people who knew how to make websites. And so I, we were able to build a whole company. We made websites for almost every entertainment company. We did AmericanExpress.com. We did ConEdison.com. So we, we built up a, a, a nice little business. But this was, again, while I was a full-time employee at HBO. Finally, it got too big. I left HBO. And then a year or so after that, I, I, I realized that, you know, they were teaching junior high school kids how to make websites. So I decided to sell the business and, and we sold. So, and so that was the right. last time I was intelligent. And then after that, <laughs> I became very stupid. Well, before we get to that, the irony when I see your LinkedIn influencer profile, I mean, you are hugely followed on LinkedIn Pulse. Your, your posts yes. get reposted constantly. People who I never would imagine following, oh, that guy who wrote for the street.com, that VC, that one percenter, whatever, you know, uh, conception I have, of, I had of you in the, you know, the early aughts or the, uh, the late 90s. Um, you, you come out and you write this and in your bio, it says you started and sold several companies, author of 11 books. The latest Actually, you know, being... it, it's funny. I was at a, a dinner last night and I was, you know, we were all introducing ourselves and I, at, at the, I thought it was uh, 13 books, and my wife uh, reminded me it was 17 books. 17 so books. Let's talk about that. Because you, so I've got you to had, update my LinkedIn profile. Well, that's right. You had this epiphany when you saw these junior high kids programming HTML. And I remember I, I designed uh, my college's first uh, dining services website way back in 1994. We had like uh, flashing cookies and, you know, blinking everything. And uh, yeah, I got paid $9 an hour. I was really excited. I was on work study. And in your case, uh, you're there at Time Warner, which did have Time Inc., which was a cash cow. And they botched, you know, this gets a little inside baseball, but I always wanted to be a fly on the wall when these magazine executives and media executives looked at each other circa 95 and said, you know what, let's just put it all up online for free. Um, and so meanwhile, um, well, I was, I was a part of a lot of a lot of, of, a lot of that time Warner 20, for, you know, 20 years later, though, you had 17 books under your belt. You've emailed me a lot of times. You, you give the books away for free. You don't care about making money on these seemingly. You send the PDFs around. What, what's your thinking generally in content creation and the value of content creation? You seem to treat it, I wouldn't say as a loss leader, but that there's another goal to your writing. 
Yeah, I don't like using the word lost leader because it implies I'm trying to make uh, a business out of it. And I think, I think, and look, I know, you know, Robin, you're, you're a business author and, and you come from that world and so do I, but, but at the end of the day, nothing is about business. It's all about who we are as people and the struggles we go through. We're, I, I don't know if we're put on this earth to experience certain struggles or not, but we certainly all do. And at the end of the day, I want to write in such a way that it's entertaining and it draws you in. But also I share my own experiences and that hopefully people could benefit from them in some way to kind of deal with this daily struggle that we have. And I don't always give away 100% for free because if you give away totally for free, people don't necessarily value it. But like, let's say I sell a book for 99 cents on Amazon. It's funny how many times people criticize me. Oh, he's just trying to make money off his book. The book's for sale for 99 cents. And I don't, you know, Amazon has splits and everything. So it's not like you make it. No, very few people make money as a, an author of books. But I love writing. I have now loved it for 25 years. Every single day I write. And, um, and I have lots of stories to tell. So I try to tell them in such a way that it's not just entertaining, but I think maybe there's a little value to it as well. I profiled you in late 2011 uh, at, a, at the magazine I used to be at. I, I had a lot of dislocation about my job. There was a, a, a lot of existential angst. Uh, Business Week was sold. Um, increasingly, you were looked at as a content provider, as a worker bee. And you and I were talking about, you know, how do you go into the great wide open? My heart is in radio, whatever radio means. I mean, public radio is being disrupted. Um, you know, here we are. You are like a hundred episodes into your podcast. I'm like, I'm like, uh, you know, twenty. Uh, I I, I want to know, um, kind of. This was at a, a a cafe, a diner right across the street from Grand Central Station. Yeah. And I remember the gusto with which you ordered pancakes, and you dug in these pancakes like a little kid. And I'm like, wow, this is not what I um, expected. And then I recently thought about that when you wrote an essay, really popular essay called I Quit in the I Quit series for LinkedIn. I walked out of a meeting and never came back. Uh, let me just read a part of it. You said, it was in the middle of a meeting. I was bored out of my mind. Plus, I was nervous because my new boss told me, don't worry about it when I asked about a raise. Well, don't worry about it means F you. Uh, so in the middle of the meeting, I excused myself for the bathroom. I limped out. I said goodbye to the receptionist. I didn't take my coat, my bag, or any of my books. My name might still be on the door. I took the elevator 49 floors down. I went up to Grand Central, took the train 70 miles north. I never went back to work. And now, uh, however many years it is after that epiphany, you're out there really holding people's hands and encouraging them to leave their jobs. Yeah, well, I think, you know, we, we kind of grew up thinking – um, you know, I was I was talking to my uh, she was then ten year old daughter a couple of years ago, and I said, "Why why do you want to go to college?" And she and this is a girl who's ten years old, and she said, "Well, you can't get a good job if you don't go to college." And I'm like, "Well, you're ten years old. Why would you even think that?" And she thought about it, and she didn't know why she thought that. So it's kind of like we're we're trained almost from birth to take this straight line path of school maybe grad school, job, family, kids, promotions, more promotions, retirement, death. And, you know, at some point, I'm not saying that straight line path is right or wrong. I'm saying it doesn't exist. Like there's no such thing. 
and and you've seen it, Robin, because you've switched. You know, I would say you've switched jobs and careers many times. So has everybody who's listening. And 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 we all get disappointed. Oh my gosh, that straight line path didn't exist. I I they lied to me. I thought it existed. And and the reality is, you know, you and and it's getting more and more so. The the pace of change in our lives is getting more and more compressed. So that you really have to constantly always be aware of the ways you need to reinvent yourself, the ways you need to change. So it's not like I quit a job for for nothing. I quit a job because, and this has happened to me several times, because there's other things that are better to do. Now, in order to come up with those things, you have to you have to be ready for it. They don't just happen. And the way you get ready for it is, you know, you constantly, I call this a daily practice. You constantly exercise your creativity. Sure. And w- one way to do that is I recommend people write down just 10 random ideas a day. You constantly stay healthy because if you're not healthy, you're not going to be able to uh, capture these opportunities. Most important, you you keep your emotional relationships going. Like you have, you, st- you stay with people who love and respect you and who, who you, you know, who you love and respect and you feel grateful for what you have instead of blaming and complaining. Like I could, you know, I've, uh, and we can get to this later, but I've lost a lot of money. I've failed at different businesses. I, I could spend time complaining about them or I can say, okay, here's what I've learned. Now I'm going to write my 10 ideas for the day and try to come up with the next opportunities for myself. And if you do that every day, very quickly, you turn into what I call an idea machine. And I can guarantee you, and this is true for me, my life changes every six months. Like you and I met in 2011, uh, or you know, you did a profile in 2011, so it's 2015 now, four years later. I can guarantee you my life has completely changed eight, eight times since then. Well, let me read some of these epiphanies for our listeners. In your I Quit essay, you wrote, for every dollar of value I create, 50 to 80% of it is eaten by the boss or his boss or his boss or some machine. For every dollar I take home, 40% is taken by the government, 10% is taken by healthcare, and another few percent is taken by transportation to work. I was deluded into thinking my work friends were real friends. At work, everyone backstabs all the time. If I talk to anyone of the opposite sex, I have to read three manuals and sign forms in triplicate with HR to make sure it's okay. When I'm trying to impress clients, I have to pretend to like them. For breakfast and lunch, I'm eating nothing but junk food while I'm in between meetings that crush my soul. From 6 a.m. until about 8 p.m., I'm either getting ready for work, going to work, at work, or coming home from work for potentially 50 years. And it's just so sobering to read that. It reminds me of the lyric in the, the Pink Floyd song, Time, right? No one told you when to run. You missed the starting gun. And a lot of friends, yeah. especially in their late 30s, their early 40s, seem to have this epiphany. Like, is this what I signed up for? Well, I remember I, I remember my first day of nursery school, actually. So I don't know how old I was, three or four. I, you know, it, 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 I only remember it because it probably scared the hell out of me. But uh, I had to go to nursery school. And I said to my I didn't want to go. And I said to my dad, well, how long is this going to last? And he said, well, you're going to go to nursery school for two years then you're going to go for to kindergarten, then first through 12th grade, then college, then probably law school or medical school. Then you'll have a job for 50 years and then you'll retire just like grandpa. And uh, I remember thinking, I, and I, I don't know how old it was. It was either three or four. And I, but I remember thinking like, this sounds really, really bad. <laughs> like, I don't want to, I don't want to leave home. And, 
you know, and it, I started down that path though for many years, just like just like everybody does, because there's no way out of it. And you, you know, we forget the reasons, the roots of all these things. Like you know, parents needed a kind of glorified babysitting service, so that was school. And you know, college. What was the original reason for college? Well, there was a kind of a higher education component, but the reality is most violent crime is is committed by young men ages 18 to 22. So you do two things. You either send them to war, which was like the Crusades and other medieval wars, or you put them in a college. And co college in medieval times was surrounded by guards, but the guards would be facing inside, not outside. It had to keep the kids in. Well, hold that thought, James, because we're going to get medieval on your bio when we come back. Full disclosure, stay with us. Full disclosure, we're talking to James Altucher. Inimitable, not describable in uh, five easy words, but nevertheless, he's with us. Joining us from a secure, undisclosed location, 70 miles north of <laughs> Grand Central Station along the Hudson River. James, um... You know, we Robin, kind of, you're really uh, funny. You're quite good at this uh, no, thanks. Uh, radio no, no. stuff. For a Sephardic guy, I don't even have the cat skills, blood, or like the borscht belt stuff in me, but I try, and I think that's what that's what matters to our listeners. James, <laughs> I, I was, you know, I, I, I heard the term PTSD thrown a lot, around a lot when we were in high school, in history class, in psychology class, people coming back from war. But there seems to be uh, an espousal of this idea that Everyone brings their own traumas into a situation that maybe, you know, in your case, you're running away from something at home. You were abandoned. Was it at a department store? You thought you were abandoned and your parents got into the elevator. A lot of right. other people I talk to later in life who have abandonment issues, say, from a father or from a divorce, um, abuse uh, at a young age, um, uh, uh, drug abuse, something uh, really traumatic that happened in their lives that they've sublimated into a, a different coping mechanism that they then took in their, their professional identities. Um, when I read your stuff, I notice that there's almost an appeal to people out there who are running from something. And there's such an eclectic group of people who read you online. I mean, I can't, I, you know, I can't typecast your reader. It's not a Wall Streeter necessarily. It's a lot of people out there that are looking to kind of relearn what they were, were taught incorrectly. I, I think, right, we're, we're going through a period where, you know, incomes ha income has gone down versus inflation for 40 straight years at this point, and people are getting fired and replaced by temp workers. This is not just me giving an opinion. These are just the, the daily facts, and you see it in the news every day. Um, so people really need to kind of what I call choose themselves. So I wrote this book, Choose Yourself. Uh, I just came out with another book, The Choose Yourself Guide to Wealth. Not necessarily promoting it. It's 99 cents on Amazon. Get it if you want. Um, and and the reality is people need to develop the skill sets now to figure out how they're going to make the decisions in their life instead of waiting for a gatekeeper. So a classic example is you write a novel and should you wait for an agent and a publisher or should you skip the gatekeeper and just publish it yourself? And you know now thanks to new technologies and in this case Amazon, you can just upload a book and it's published. But it and seems like you, you have oh, to you, you you're telling me you have to have a personal inflection point. IE, you know your story when you were at the was at the Chelsea Hotel uh, during the financial crisis. I remember you told me this in in 2011. I couldn't imagine you on a bender. I couldn't imagine you in your, you know, millionaire days commissioning helicopters to go to Atlantic City. Take me back to that trauma because I want to tease this out. I want to see 
where you had the epiphany, kind of the maturity that you need to pinpoint this vulnerability to be able to grow and then to advise people on kind of what you've learned? Well, you know, and I would say there's no one point because I've kind of made money and gone broke uh, on several different occasions. I've built a lot of different businesses and I've, I've, you know, I never really quite understood what was happening to me. I never was really understood the the money part of the equation. And, uh, uh, but finally I was so down and out, like I was dead broke. When was, was this? Losing- when was this? Well, I could say 2002, I could say 2004, I could say 2008, I could say 2010. So, but let let's let me take it to 2008 because this was maybe the worst point. Although 2002 was and 2001 were not pleasant either. But 2007, 2008, I was going through a divorce. I had sold a company, but then I had lost all my money yet again. I was losing my house. I was losing what I thought was going to be my family, uh, and. I was just super depressed. I was so depressed. I thought to myself, you know, it would be better if my kids had my life insurance policy than if they had a dad because I felt I was worthless. It's like a Willie Loman epiphany. I'm better off dead than alive. I'm more valuable. Yeah, because, you know, you you start to go through this funnel of decision making where, you know, the top of the funnel is very wide and you think you have a lot of choices, but it starts to circle down until it feels like there's only one tiny way out and you don't really see any other way. And that's really where I was at. And, you know, I kind of had to look back and say, well, look, what's worked for me when things were going well and what failed for me when things were going down? And I and it, it sounds almost too simple. But what I realized was, you know, the best predictor of a successful tomorrow is a successful today. And the way I could be successful today is just very simple. I need to be physically healthy or else I'm never going to get anywhere. I need to be around people I love. It's like I said before. I need to have strong emotional relationships. I but need just to stay wait, 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 hold on. Before you get into this, how did this come to you? It's not like an asteroid crashed into your brain while you were borderline suicidal, while you were, you know, drinking, while you were binging. I mean, I'm I'm struck by the fact that you admit at the same time that you're very vulnerable and you're given to relapses and yet you're out there giving really confident advice. How did this how did this come to you? What did you read? Where, where did you have that aha moment? It, it it wasn't anything I read. It was only what it was it was only what I experienced because I was I was like I knew what had gone wrong. I had started you know spending time with people who were not good for me. I had stopped being creative. I had started complaining and regretting and being ang- I was anxious all the time. I was not healthy. I was drinking all the time. I wasn't sleeping. Um, you know, so I it was almost like I decided, look, when I've done the reverse of this, when I be around and do business with and be friends with people who are actually good people, good things happen. When I write down 10 ideas a day and share those ideas with others, good things happen. When I'm grateful for what I have in the moment, good things start to happen. And of course, when I'm physically healthy, even better things happen. So so I decided, look, every time I had made money, I kind of said, that's it. I'm done with the process of being good. I can now do whatever I want. Yeah, I thought it's called kind of it's called was, FU money when I've interviewed people. Like you make that first right. five and million and or no something. Such thing. There's no there, such there's thing. There's no such thing as FU money is the thing, because ultimately you, st- you still have to be a human being. Right. We're, we're not here on this earth to make money. We're here on this earth to, you know, 
create value for ourselves and for others. And says or, who, or James? Not, says says who? I mean, I might agree with you, but atavistically, uh, uh, like animals are self-interested. We're we're higher order animals. Terrible things happen to us. Um, you know, there's a predatory kind of survival, of the fittest nature, in, in a lot of business and a lot of the natural way of the world and people that you study. Why why are you so kind of optimistically humanistic? Well, uh. I, I, you say says you, says who, says me. And, and I'll tell you why. It's because I don't know if it'll work for anybody else. All I know is it's worked for me. So, you know, starting from that moment, and I, I call it a daily practice because I have to do it every single day. Starting from that moment, uh, things really started to turn around for me. Things that turned around for me in the past, but now I wasn't going to stop doing this daily practice. And things really continue to do well. And I don't mean necessarily financially well, although financially it has done very well. But it also means when financially things go poorly, I I don't get into the same bad rut anymore. I'm able to move past it. I'll give you an example. Uh, recently, something very bad happened to a company that I had a lot of shares in that I advise. Uh, and you know, someone stole essentially $90 million from the company. And so the company was a billion revenue company. The company went out of business within within weeks. And it used to be this could be something that was devastating for me. But now, okay, I have other things going on and I'm very happy with the other things that are going on. Some of them I'm financially happy with. Some of them I'm happy creatively with. And life goes on. I can't regret every, you know, we're always going to have financial ups and downs. The key is not... Um, caving into them. It's not It's not the only part of our lives. In fact, it's probably the least part of our life that, that actually contributes to abundance and success. And so when I say deliver value to others, I know that the best way for me to be abundant is if I help other people be uh, even more abundant. And that's kind of just the way to get there is I have to be competent in what I do. I have to have good relationships with everybody around me and I have to be free. I have to have freedom to make choices. And the way I get there is if I'm physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually healthy. So says who says me, cause it's just, it's just worked for me. I don't believe in any one philosophy or anything like that. This is what's worked for me. Talking with James Altucher here on Full Disclosure. Uh, James, you've you've branched out into various things. When we were talking in 2011, there was this comic book that uh, illustrated some real scenes in your life, uh, some encounters with people, some really deep insecurities. You espouse uh, something out there, which I guess could be called radical transparency, which is which is very disarming when you first you know meet James Altucher in person. In addition to digging into these pancakes, you're telling me about traumas and insecurities that typically, you know, a person would need days or weeks of trust to to let on or to, to leak out to a person. What is it about that? What is it that's so why do you feel trusting with people enough to kind of spill this stuff out? And now you do it times 10 million when you post these things to LinkedIn and your blog and you write these books almost like a machine. Well, the thing is. People are natural voyeurs, so they don't want to hear. Like I read these articles, not on, not I, you know, on every website. Oh, here's the best tips for doing an interview at work, or here's the best ways to be uh, an entrepreneur. And it's like somebody's preaching from some pedestal or from some ma some mountaintop. You do this, you do this, you do this, and that's the famous listicle. And uh, that doesn't work for me. I need to. I need to feel. I'm telling a real story. Here's where 
I have fallen and fallen badly, and then here's how I picked myself up. And I'm not giving any advice when I do that. I'm just saying this is what's happened to me and what's worked for me. If I can't, if I'm afraid to sort of say what's really happened to me, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to deliver value for other people. Just like all these other thousands of articles end up ultimately delivering zero, zero value to the people they intend to deliver value to. Now, I think a lot of people are afraid to kind of share these things, but I'll tell you the benefits of being honest have so far outweighed the reverse that it's unbelievable because people know when you're honest that you're a trusted source and they come to you first like hey can you advise my company i trust you because you you're an honest guy and look horrible things have happened to me but horrible things have happened to everyone and 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 you know we each share to the level that we're comfortable with i happen to not care at all what people think about me, so I share the maximum. Tell me about that time you found out that um, your your link was really at the top of the Google uh, list when people Googled "I want to die," which is a precursor to, you know, in, in looking into suicide, exploring suicide. You know, if you if you type it in, it's a real morbid thing to do. Obviously, there's a huge suicide prevention number, and Google does not want to. Uh, you know, grease the skids to, to helping people do that. When did you learn that, and and how did it affect your thinking about the um, the gravity of your advice? Well, it, it's funny because I I learned about uh, so I had an article that I posted called "I Want to Die," which described uh, when I was at a lo low point and I started go I started not googling, but I think it was Alta Vistaing. Um, you know, all the different tools for or techniques for killing yourself. And by the way, there really is no painless way to to kill yourself. There's, things can get screwed up no matter how you try it. But uh, uh, people, so, you know, suddenly people were emailing me, you're, uh, this is really bad. You're first on Google for I want to die when instead of there being like a suicide hotline for, for as the first result. And so people were like, really, I was getting hate mail off of this article, this painful article that I wrote. I was getting hate mail because I was, it's not my fault. I was number one on Google for it. In fact, I think so many people complained. Google maybe did. Uh, I mean, I don't even know. I'll check right now. Um, Google maybe did put uh, the suicide hotline as the first thing. Nope. I, I'm, I'm number one. <laughs> so... Actually, I don't even see the uh, suicide hotline on there. So, in the time since that, you know, that epiphany happened, you've you've obviously been approached, and you've you've written about this. You've been approached by people who you've you've helped, uh, you know, dig themselves out of that morass, as opposed to hate mail. I get, uh, I mean, I get hundreds of emails every day, not only with people who say thank you, but also for people who are going through it right now and they want advice. And I don't necessarily have advice. I just say the same thing. I just say what worked for me, which is that. Look, I had two children. Ultimately, I decided they would be better with a dad than with my life insurance policy. And also, to be honest, I was scared. Like there was no I can guarantee you there is no way to to properly do this without potentially screwing yourself up royally. So, uh, you know, I, I tell people, though, what I did, which is, again, I, I keep getting back to this, this daily practice of being healthy in these various ways. And and, you know, I wanted freedom for myself more than anything. I didn't want to die. I wanted freedom. Now, you you, you, you you really poignantly described that you you wanted to kill these emotions. When you were able to tease out the separation, like, I don't even know my organs. I don't even know which side of my chest my heart is on. Do I really want to end my heart? No, I want to end these terrible feelings of 
guilt and abandonment. And it takes a, it takes almost like a, a higher order mind, a, a meta a maturity, like a higher voice to kind of intervene and say, no, James, don't just take the, um, you know, I wouldn't well, say that, the easy route Well, that's a good way out. to put it. That's a good way to put it because really the first step with a lot of this stuff is noticing that you're suffering. So instead of just suffering and feeling anxious, you kind of distance yourself a little bit and you say, hey, I, I, I'm, I'm feeling really anxious right now. So you kind of separate out the anxiety from who you are because you're not anxious. You're feeling anxiety. You, something inside of you is feeling anxiety. There are chemicals shooting around in your body and your brain that are feeling, you know, worried or depressed or anxious or scared and kind of sitting, you know, not necessarily sitting with that, but okay, now what can I do? Maybe I can take a walk or maybe I can come up with 10 ideas or maybe I can write a little bit or maybe I can call a friend or maybe I can take a step back and feel uh, grateful for what I do have. These are really hard things to do when you're feeling really anxious or when you're feeling do really you find, scared. Do you find that these pieces of advice actually resonate in private with a lot of the macho people you used to bump into at Wall Street? I mean, you work there in the belly of the beast, 14 wall, you're on 40 wall, you deal with, you dealt with all manner of private equity pricks and, and, and hedgies and the like. <laughs> do they reach out to you in private and say, you know, actually my life is falling apart? You talked about this person you knew at Goldman who who committed suicide, who you thought, you know, uh, was a Wall Street banker or someone who thought that he had it all figured out, that there's a shadow and a persona. Yeah, I mean, every, look, everybody wears, including me, everybody wears a mask to some extent. And, uh, uh, you know, I think a lot of the Wall Street guys have been uh, consumed thinking, um, okay, money is part of my straight path to success. When, again, there's always going to be zigzags, and they don't. if you don't know how to deal with the zigzags, you're going to feel um, enormous, enormous pain because you're going to feel like uh, you're being left behind on something you were taught for 30 or 40 years. You're going to feel like you're, you've been left behind, and that's going to trigger all sorts of incredibly painful emotions. And, uh, you know... I don't know who listens to me or not. I know a lot of people relate to the fact that they need a change. So whether whether they're at, they're at a Wall Street job or they're at a cubicle job or whatever, uh, a lot of people get to the point where they feel almost bloated with their job. Like they need they need to change something. They need to go through some reinvention and they don't know how to do it. And I think people look at my blog and they say, oh, here is someone who has gone through some reinventions, and he describes very specifically what those reinventions were, and how he did it, and what he did. And I relate a little. I I kind of relate to what is happening here. I mean, I get a lot of emails saying, you know, I feel like someone's uh, t talking what's in my head sure. because I think a lot of people relate to that feeling like I have to change, or I have to at least get used to change, or I have to learn how to change, and. Uh, you know, people want that in their lives. And look, again, it's not like you change and then now you're done. I, uh, my life is almost completely different every six months, as I mentioned earlier, um, because I'm constantly looking at new ways to, well, I'm not even constantly looking for anything. I'm just constantly coming up with new ideas every day and uh, uh, being around people who inspire me. All right, now hold that. We're going to come back with James Altucher, who I've once dubbed Wall Street's keeper of the pain. He is much, much more than that. Full disclosure, we'll be right back. James Altucher, when you and I had breakfast in late 2011, I was on the fence about, you know, 
considering a new career move. You're giving me advice. You're at the crossroads with potentially a lot of exits. Uh, the market is uh, uh, rip-roaring uh, after that. Certainly, there was a correction in 2011. And now we're closer to kind of your, your prediction back then that, look, very easily, you told me candidly, I don't even know if you made the story, the Dow can make 20000 because the Federal Reserve, the biggest bank that ever existed, is throwing an unlimited amount of money at it. Hello, are you dumb? Um, how do you go back? And I know you don't want to go you know, to mercenary personal finance advice. I certainly have never liked it when people accosted me at, at you know funerals or cocktail parties and asked me about this. But how does the little guy... You know who whose hand you're now holding after all of this one percent stuff that you've done institutionally. What are his chances, or what can he do, or what is your first or best piece of advice to the little guy? Well, right now the uh, the opportunities to make money are greater than ever. So I don't really care about macroeconomics. Like you'll ha- you'll see all these you know new news reports. Oh, the dollar is going to do this, or the federal. Re- government debt is this or uh you know all these horrible you ukraine crisis could spread to the united states somehow or oil prices are going to zero i i don't follow the news i actually don't even read a single newspaper ever and um i think i think the news is just it's like eating um i don't know doritos all day long it's just total junk food and and people say oh well don't you want to stay informed um I'm informed. Like reading the newspaper does not make you informed. Um, there's plenty of other ways to to be informed. And you know, investing in stocks, I would say I would say about 95% of public companies are largely scams or or, or Ponzi whoa, schemes. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Say that again. How many? 95% of public companies? Yes. I mean, I think I think when you dig into the accounting of almost every company out there, they're just there's so much BS. And then on top of that, you have to then figure out, well, how should I value this company? How are other, you know, by the way, your investment has nothing to do with how you value the company. It's how a year from now, everyone else will be valuing the company. So all of these things are unpredictable. So investing in the stock market is just largely, I'm not going to say 100%, but largely a fool's game. Like, really? And I don't like to play. I don't like to play foolish games. So, so the best way to make money is to invest in yourself. If, you know, if you invest in the in bonds or the stock market, if you're lucky, you might make one or two percent a year, maybe three or four percent a year. But if you invest in yourself, you're going to make ten thousand percent a year. I'll give you a simple example. This is not the example I'm recommending, but it kind of describes what I mean. Let's say, Robin, you don't know anything about photography, but you buy a nice camera and you buy 10 books about photography and you spend three weeks uh, interning with uh, a guy who photographs weddings. Okay, now you put up a sign um, at the grocery store, I'll, I'll photograph weddings at half the price of everybody else who photographs weddings. Suddenly now you've just spent about a thousand bucks and you're going to make at least 10,000 bucks that year of photographing weddings. So- Again, I'm not recommending people become wedding photographers. I'm just saying this is how it works. When you invest in yourself, you have an opportunity to make a 10,000% return per year instead of a 3% per, uh, return and or a negative return. And you know that works across all industries. So for instance, um, you know, let's say 
you uh, are, you know, you love writing. I, I know a guy, um, you should probably interview him. His name's Steve Scott. He writes about habits, how people can build better habits. Well, he puts, he puts out a new, he had never written a book before, but he started putting out a book on Amazon every three weeks. Uh, now he makes about $60,000 a month uh, writing but James, books about aren't habits. these the exceptions to the rules, like the Fifty Shades of Grey, you know, one in 10,000 chance of doing it? A lot of people, you know, you've been critical of passions. Sometimes passions will send you into a rabbit hole and you'll be broke. I don't know if this guy is passionate about habits. Uh, I have no idea, actually. But and you're right. Maybe it is one in 10,000. But. Uh, again, if you invest in yourself, you're never going to have a negative return from it. You're either going to have a learning experience that will drive you to another thing to do that could have 10,000% returns, or you'll find success, some degree of success that you'll combine with, you know, I'm always in favor of what I call idea sex. So putting different industries together to, so that you, like maybe I'm pretty good in one industry and pretty good in another industry, but if I find the intersection, I might be the best in the world at the intersection. So trying lots of things, you might not necessarily succeed at everything you try. In fact, you'll probably fail at most things you try. I, I've started probably 20 businesses and maybe 17 of them were total failures. But when you put things together and you and you put expertise together, and when you when you learn things in different industries and you put it together, you suddenly become the best in the world at the intersection. And that's where you find true success. But the only way you can do that is if you invest in yourself. And it starts again, ground level. I'm not talking about money, ground level, truly investing on the internals of yourself so that it becomes reflected on the outside. Then if you have an extra thousand dollars in the bank, Start to figure out, come up with ideas how I can invest that in tools I need to become a success. And if you can't figure it out, by the way, keep it in cash. You well, don't James, put it in, in the in, stock market. In fairness, in fairness, and you know, you know, I love you, man. I'm going to be, uh, you know, open about that. I've always been a fan sure. of your stuff. I <laughs> tweeted out religiously. And ditto. Isn't it easy for you to say that you've made and lost and made and lost millions and millions of dollars, right? You can, you could, if you wanted, just put out, put it out there, say, I'm going to be that guy you never see, that recluse. I have money in the bank. I'm provided for. I've, I've, I'm, I'm wizened. My books are out there. I'm a, I, I get paid for speeches. What about the people out there that don't have the, the, you, you could say the luxury of being out, being able to go out and quote unquote, what invest in themselves. It's, it's kind of squishy advice. You almost might get it in a Ramada Inn from a, a cheap Tony Robbins type person. Right. Right. So that's why I'm not giving advice necessarily. I am saying again, this is what I did. So I had nothing. I had I had less than nothing. Okay, I had. But a you're house a smart guy. You you know that you can day trade your way out of a problem. You've, you, I, I you didn't, know, you've, you've I didn't done that know. before. But but I, but I didn't know. And in fact, I day traded. You know, there was one point, like in 2001, I day traded all of my money away. I lost all my money finally from from day trading. So I had no. There was never when I was at a low point. I had no nothing to grasp onto. I had nothing to say, okay, I know I can pull myself back up. I was scared because I was gonna, you know, because I was considering the worst outcomes and I was losing family, home, the IRS was after me. I was scared in every way. But how does a person terrified. who doesn't have money in the bank invest in themselves, go long on themselves? It's easy to say that, but when you have real bills, when you have real debt, when you have uh, concerns, uh, but, but, but Robin, I, I had all of that. So, you know, and I could tell you, I'll, I'll tell you an example. So, so, you know, ideas, don't think of money as currency. Think of ideas as currency. So I'll tell you one example, and this is from 2002. I was really just going under 
and I had no money. I was, again, I was getting foreclosed on. I didn't have money for diapers for my kids. So, and, and you my literally, parents, did, you literally did not have money for diapers for your kids. I, I had $143 in my ATM after losing 15 million. So, so, and, and that was the, the, I, I called up my parents and, and said, can I drive a hundred miles to pick up a couple hundred dollars so I could just pay for my kids for a few more days. And then I'll pay you back after I sell my house, which was, you know, before it gets foreclosed on and they turned me down. And uh, I hung up on the phone because I had to focus on how I was going to get money. Like I was really terrified. And one thing I learned is that ideas are the real currency of this century now. So I, I would write to people and instead of just writing, hey, can you meet me for a coffee? Because I had tried that approach and it failed. I said, look, I've studied your business. Here's 10 ideas that I think you should do for your business. Good luck. I wouldn't, I would write them and I wouldn't expect anything in return. And I would send out, let's say 40, 50 emails like this and three people responded. And in two of those three cases, I was able to turn their response into a money-making opportunity for myself. If I had never done that, I don't know what would have happened. Um, but that's the way I invested in myself without any money because ideas are of are more valuable currency than money. People need ideas. People need your ideas more than they need your money. So I would write, for instance, I wrote to Jim Cramer, for instance, who writes for the street.com and he has the TV show Mad Money. I said, here's t ideas for 10 articles you should write. Now, mind you, this was coming from a guy. I was a guy who lost all my money investing at that point. And so I was writing to him. Wait, so Here's it was like writing ideas. him an unsolicited press release? How did you get through? Well, I, he, you know, he, his email was published at the end of his articles. And so I would just hit reply. And uh, uh, I said, here's 10 articles I would read if you would write. You know, I was, I was not saying... I, w I was not pitching him anything. I was not saying I want to write these articles. I was not saying pay me to write these articles. I was saying here's 10 articles you should write, Jim, and I'll read them. And I didn't know him at so all. So what's the like logic in that? You you cover his back, you get his back and kind of cover his ass, and then he has a vested interest in maybe plugging you to someone? No. Um, always is the case throughout history, the more value – if you want to create wealth and abundance for yourself – you create wealth and abundance for others without zero expectation. That's the rule. So, so you know, Wait, I don't again, care what says industry. you says you where where you know I, I you you turned to Eastern philosophy. I know a couple years ago, but when when did was that cemented in your head as kind of being a well, fact of life? Tell me, tell me, give me the name of any entrepreneur in the world, and I'll give you how, and I'll tell you how they did it. Oh, Steve Jobs. Okay, look, how many people have made wealth? from the personal computer. No, that's true, but here's a guy, here's I, I a guy you, who sapped, you, here's a guy who, you know, he changed the world. He's like a modern Edison, but he was miserable. You know, you, you had these 10 takeaways, these things you didn't know about Steve Jobs. He made people miserable. He made people sure, sure. mad to go home, bad to their kids. He made them doubt themselves. He dressed them down in front of other people. The kind of person you never wanted to be or never wanted to work for. Right, right, but we're, 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 we're not talking about Steve Jobs personally. We're talking about how he made uh, how he created wealth for himself and, of course, for all the shareholders of Apple and, and employees of Apple. But what he really did was he created trillions of dollars of wealth in the world economy. He, he and Steve Wozniak invented a device that created over a trillion dollars in wealth. So that's how he made his money. Correct. And, but and, did he not and, do it by being miserable and making other people miserable? 
That's sure, not. That's I'm not, not taking not you a, on a sidetrack. That, that's not a requirement. That was just Steve Jobs. You know, that was his personality. But that's certainly not a requirement. So, like when I wrote to Jim Cramer, I wasn't miserable in that in that sense. I mean, I was miserable for my own reasons, but I wasn't a bad guy. I legitimately was trying to help him do his job better. And instead of him just saying thanks, I'm going to write these or not reply, he wrote back and said. Uh, these are great ideas. Why don't you write these articles? So suddenly I had a career as a writer. I started writing these articles and that built up and I gave more and more ideas to Jim and to the street.com. And about five years later, I sold a company to the street.com so by coming up with more and more and more ideas and sharing them for free. Ultimately, I was able to build something that created a lot of value for them, uh, and created a lot of value for me. But every step of the way, I was more focused on creating value for them than I was focused now, James, on creating value for Now, James, while myself. I have you, I do want to know what happened to you and Jim Cramer. I profiled him for Business Week. I think his show is exactly 10 years old today. Yes, uh, yes. Mad Money. Did you guys have a falling out or something? When I asked him for comment on, on your profile, he just said, no, thanks. I, I, I don't know what happened behind the scenes. In fairness, a lot of people have said about James Altucher, he, he is great for a while, but he disappears. He's almost like a champagne mango. You know, he's out there for three weeks out of the year in abundance, and then he never returns your calls or emails. What happened with <laughs> well, Jim Kramer? I, I think, you know, people build expectations on you. When you give, when you deliver a lot of value, people don't want the, the value to ever end. And so, but you know, I end up, ultimately, we all have freedom of choice. I end up doing what I'm interested in doing. So I wrote articles, I, I created a lot of value for them, but then I wanted to go in a different direction. And people, did, he feel, did he feel abandoned? I don't really know. I mean, uh, look, recently he was on my podcast, so I have no idea. Things, relationships change, they have their ups and downs like anything. And I, I would say with most people in my life who I've, uh, let's say who have been mentors, they continue to want to be a mentor. And ultimately I, people do their own things and they, people go in different directions. You know, for, for a long time, you know, Carl Jung looked up to, uh, Sigmund Freud and then eventually, uh, Freud didn't want to have anything to do with Jung anymore. Jung went his own way. I'm not comparing myself to either of those two, but that that's just kind of the nature of life. Uh, you know, many people who, uh, you know, who looked up to Steve Jobs end up being disenchanted and, and, or, you know, again, I'm not comparing myself to anything, but, uh, that's just, that's just natural that relationships go up and down. Like I said, Jim was on my, when Jim's last book was released, um, they invited me to do a series of 10 videos with him to because they knew I would be the best person to ask him questions about his book and I would read it and thoroughly understand it. And, and that was long after he said his no thanks. So I, I don't know why he said no thanks there. I, I personally have never had a bad relationship with him, but I don't know how he feels about me. Well, I do want to ask you this because, you know, uh, we, we broached, um, you know, like the one question thing. ESPN has it, the one thing. It seems like something you would have asked on your webcast 3 a.m. If I'm at a wedding and, for example, I'm sitting down next to a proctologist or a funeral operator or a sushi chef, <laughs> and I say, what's the one thing I need to know? Or the, one, the, the thing that you, you go to sleep at night and you close your eyes and you say, wow, if people outside of my profession only knew X, Y, Z, blah, 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 then they would blah, blah, blah. So, for example, a, a, a restaurant guys like never eat sushi on a Sunday night. If I'm sitting next to you at 
a bat mitzvah, James Altucher. What is that one I, I thing? I hope you're you never going to be sitting next to me at a bat mitzvah. You'd be I one really of the more interesting go. people to sit next to. What is that one piece of advice in your in your really uh, bizarre career arc that you would you would say like if only you knew X Y Z? Considering you've been at the nexus of finance and content and psychology and spirituality and um, self revelation. I think you always have to keep the mindset that you have to choose yourself, that you can't be worried about what uh, what other people think of you is none of your business. You always have to choose yourself and create, and, and you do that by creating value for others, and that's how value comes back to you. And the way you do that is by every day being physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually healthy. And I know I sound like a broken record with that, but that's because I do it every day. And for me, it works magic more than anything in my life has ever worked. And I, it sounds really simple. That's why there's no fancy answer. Uh, it sounds very simple, but it really works. And you do like getting up in the mornings now. You don't have this sense of dread. You don't feel the need to go to an office in New York and, and flee 70 miles north of Grand Central? <laughs> no, no, never. I only do what I want to do. And that and, and at first glance, that sounds like a selfish thing to say. But at the end of the day, what I want to do is create value and abundance for others. Because I know, you know, if, if the stronger my network is, the stronger I am. And so, and that's, that comes from A, having strong relationships with people and B, coming up with ideas for them and, and having a strong, what I call idea muscle. Now, it took me four years to, to tell you this and to get a hold of you and to kind of, you know, grab you by the collar. But one, I want to say thank you. Thank you for helping me realize this dream and for, you know, holding thank my hands when that. I was profiling you. And two, you order you you owe me a fat stack of pancakes in front of Grand Central. So <laughs> the next time I'm in Manhattan, you're going to answer my call and you're going to take that train down to Grand Central. 70 a absolutely, miles. Absolutely, Robin. Absolutely. I, I love the pancakes there. Pershing Square is the name of the restaurant. Uh, they have the best pancakes. James Altucher, you're one of a kind. Thank you so much for joining us. Your Twitter handle is jaltucher. Yes. You could be found on LinkedIn, Facebook. Our show, Full D Radio, is on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, WRIR every Wednesday at 9 in the morning before the takeaway. Uh, you can hear it in Central Virginia on LinkedIn. We're on Facebook. We're on Excited Home, Atari, and ColecoVision. So how you like me now, James Altucher? Excellent, Robin. Thank you so much for once again, uh, you know, working with me and profiling me and so on. This is great. My pleasure, James. Full disclosure, we'll be back with you next week.